This episode is brought to you by LMNT. Healthy hydration isn't just about drinking water, it's about water plus electrolytes. It makes sense, you lose both water and sodium when you sweat. Both need to be replaced to prevent muscle cramps, headaches and energy dips. But most people only replace the water. Why? Well, because since the 1940s we've been told to drink 8 glasses of water per day, thirsty or not. Drinking beyond thirst is a bad idea. It dilutes blood electrolyte levels, especially sodium, which leads to headaches, low energy, cramps, confusion, or even worse. This low sodium situation called hyponatremia is very common amongst endurance athletes, shift workers, and those who work outside in the heat, leading to thermal stress. The solution isn't to stop drinking water, it's to drink water plus electrolytes. This is where LMNT comes in. Just mix this flavor, electrolyte drink mix, into your water bottle and you're good to go. It's got no sugar or artificial junk, just electrolytes. LMNT has your electrolyte needs covered. Former research biochemist Rob Wolf and Keto Gains founder Tyler Cartwright and Louis Villasener formulated LMNT to provide the optimal ratios of sodium, potassium and magnesium for health, performance and energy. They also formulated LMNT to please your palate. Many different flavors such as orange salt, citrus salt, watermelon salt and many many more just head over to lmnt to find out or better still go down to the show notes click on the link the sleep for performance link to get um, to click on this and get your free promotional pack where you can get a taster pack and no questions asked refund policy as well you don't even need to send it back so check it out at lmnt in the show notes bonjour and welcome to the sleep for performance podcast today i will be speaking in french I have just completed my part in French. That will be the end of the French-speaking part. Sorry, John. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, bonjour, everyone. Everyone, I'm happy to be here. Thanks for the effort, Ian. Always appreciate it. <laughs> no worries, mate. You always, um, when I listen to you speak and I close my eyes, I always think of George Saint Pierre. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> every UFC fan, they yeah, definitely have a very similar accent to GSP. <laughs> That's for sure. So, Jonathan, you join us today from uh, Calgary, but you're not from Calgary originally in Canada. Whereabouts are you from originally? I'm from Quebec, as you can hear. So, uh, a little uh, village uh, north of Montreal. So, uh, I'm I'm basically one hour, one hour and a half north of Montreal. Did my study uh, in Sherbrooke, Montreal, in uh, Quebec City, and I am now in uh, Calgary. Uh, working at the uh, Center for Sleep and Human Performance with Dr. Charles Samuel. And I'm also uh, a adjunct professor at the University of Calgary in kinesiology and a adjunct at the uh, Université Laval in uh, School of Psychology. And I'm one of the uh, board member of the uh, Canadian Sleep Society and one of the uh, scientific committee member of the Society of Behavioral Sleep Medicine now. Very good. You're uh, you're full steam ahead, my friend. You are pumping away. You are um, you are doing lots of good work. Yeah. 
trying to have a uh, uh, trying to stick my nose as uh, pretty much everywhere <laughs> as I can in the world of sleep. I'm just missing now the area of Europe and Australia, but I'm coming for you guys. <laughs> yeah, come 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 along, man. I don't care. <laughs> we can fight. <laughs> no, 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 I, I'm coming for you in terms of developing relationship, not not oh, in okay, a okay, confrontational okay, okay, okay. way. Okay, I'm not okay. I'm not big enough for that. <laughs> <laughs> um. <laughs> um no, I forgot what I was going to say. Um, so, Jonathan, you and I um, have been sort of touching pa- paths, uh, come across paths, and uh, sort of coming together on different stuff over the last few years. Uh, you're on a probably similar trajectory to me in terms of uh, your scientific career. But we spoke at World Sleep together back in 2019 in Vancouver yeah, in the same already. symposium session. Um, so that's like yeah, nearly three years ago. Um, you've been on the Sleep for Performance seminar, um, and uh, you've been on the podcast before. Uh, no, it's my first oh, no. time, I think, on the podcast. And oh, I've been on the sleep seminar, yeah, talking oh, about okay. one of my uh, study in basketball and BA. And now it's my very first time. I'm very happy, actually. Oh, I'm, I'm surprised. We had, I, I was, I, in my mind, I thought I had John before, but there you go. I must be losing my mind. So there you go. <laughs> um, but um, yeah, it's it's good to have you on. Um, so the first thing I want to ask you, actually, is not even related to science. You obviously were, like you said, raised in Quebec. You probably grew up as a as a francophone. How do you find it, like, writing in a different language and, and communicating a lot in a different language? Do you find it hard, or are you fairly versatile at moving back and forth? <clears throat> uh, where, <clears throat> so where I'm from in Quebec, I'm probably one of the five people that do actually speak English now. So I had the uh, the luck and the chance of being in a very bilingual uh, sport, which was track and field. And with track and field in Quebec, you are, uh, I moved to Montreal at an early age. And in Montreal being a uh, multi-center, multi-ethnicity uh, city, yeah. I was, uh, I was uh, welcome and introduced to English very, very early in, uh, in, in my uh, teenage year. But even with that, I decided to stay on the uh, path of uh, francophone education. And I did learn uh, to speak and write in English uh, through sport, actually, not even academic. I really did start writing in English uh, during my first year uh, PhD. So it was in back in 2016 is when I truly started to learn and write in English. So to answer your question, is it hard? Definitely it is. It's, it's always a, a bigger challenge to actually take on a, a workload or a article or a re- review of literature in English and in mm-hmm. French. But the more and more I write, of course, it's always in English. Uh, now I find myself having more uh, automatic thinking and automatic thoughts in, in English rather than French, yeah. as bizarre as it sounds. But so no, it's, it's always a little harder to write in your second language than in your first one. Yeah, I, I I often think to people like I, I just see my attempts like learning Spanish, you know, and I think, oh my god, imagine trying to write a paper in their language like how it's hard enough just to like you know order a coffee and a pizza or whatever, but imagine writing a paper. I you know I commend any scientist that writes in their second language. I think it's absolutely amazing. And when I get papers to review or I see people presenting and they can manage the questions, I'm just in awe. I'm always in awe. I think I think a lot of times people overlook it. I think it's absolutely fantastic that you can do it. So. Yeah, hats off to you, Matt, because uh, I I would be really struggling. I can barely write in English, never mind, never mind in French, you know. So, you know, well done. I think it's great. I I yeah. So I just wanted to ask that about that because, 
it's quite it's quite interesting. I did spend a little bit of time in Montreal for work. Um, I've been in Satil a few times. Um, oh, been up to Labrador, and um, there's a little kind of Labrador just touches on the edge of Quebec. There's a little village across um, yeah. from Vermont, Vermont, uh, Vermont, yeah, Vermont, yeah, yeah. The the wall, yeah. people call it yeah, the, the wall because it's got like yeah, a wall, wall of like apartments, like where people live in it. It's like the whole yeah, town is so- in a wall. It's bizarre. Yeah. It's it's a I don't know Vermont is its own has its own culture and Labrador and Newfoundland also has a yeah. very different culture than 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 Quebec. So now it's a, you have a, a clash right there and you have the 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 francophone and anglophone clash, the northern clash right there and mm. and now it's a very interesting city to actually visit. Uh, to work there, well, I hope it was a contract. Nothing bad to say against them, but it's 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 a harder place to stay. Oh. It's, it's it's cold. Yeah, very and cold. It, yeah, no, it's not. It's not a uh, very inviting place if you're looking for warm, warm weather. Yeah, I went there in the middle of winter and it was minus forty-two, and Celsius, not Fahrenheit. And um, and I went back in summer and it was like mid twenties. It was beautiful in the summer, really nice in the summer. But um, two weeks. Yeah, it was. A, I think I just hit the right spot. Um, but I went to that place like Fairmont, Fairmont, um, for like lunch a couple of times on a Sunday. It's only like sixteen kilometers or something from Labrador City. It's kind of bizarre, but. People speaking French and you just like it's just weird. Like they just kind of go a few k's down the road and yeah, that's where I had frog leg for the first time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, and, and in the in that part of, of Quebec, you'll have a lot of what we call Franglish. So you go back and forth from Fran- uh, from French to English and in yeah. mid sentence and and so that that's one of the beauty of Quebec actually. It's it's I love the fact that a lot of uh, individual and citizen there can just go back and forth from English yeah. to French to French to English. And this is part of the beauty of that culture there. Yeah. And look, I and what I love about Montreal is exactly like that. What you say, you can walk into a shop and somebody goes like, bonjour, hello. And whenever you respond, they'll speak or you're in a restaurant and people are sitting beside you and they're talking away in English. But then they'll tell a joke in French because it might be better in French. And then they'll switch back in and then they'll. You know, and it won't even say, oh, I'm going to switch to French. They'll just like roll in and out of language. And it's absolutely like, I don't know, it's kind of, it's, it's really cool to watch. And yeah, it's, it's bizarre. And even like when people have, are drunk, they'll do it. Like, yeah, it's, it's unbelievable. <laughs> if anything, they'll be better at it when drunk. <laughs> Maybe, yeah. Now I will say, I'll, I'll, you know, I'm, I'm not getting paid by the Canadian tourist board, but I will say for anybody out there, if you are looking for one of the best holidays, go to Montreal at the height of summer. It may be oh, yeah. the best city in the world. Do not go in the winter. You will think it's a shithole and because it's all closed down. You will be like, this place is dead. But go to Montreal in the middle of the summer and it is just like, I can't describe what it is. I thought New York was good. Montreal is way better. It's yeah, like no, a party and a fiesta down those streets at like even two o'clock in the morning. Yeah, well, a bar closes at 3 a.m. in yeah. Montreal. And so in, in summertime, for those who are uh, F1 fan, you have the uh, Grand Prix of Montreal in June. Yep. Then you have the, the Jazz Festival. You have the, the Art Festival. You have the, uh, the uh, Just for Life Festival. You have a festival almost every week of the summer in Montreal. And you, you, have, you have something for everyone. You have the Italian neighborhood during the F1 uh, weekend that is just transformed forming on its head and you have and so no definitely montreal for summertime it's a big big destination and i would yeah. strongly recommend for everyone yeah 
all right, well, we're not gonna we're not gonna sit here and be like you know the tourist board for Quebec. So we need to move on because uh, we are scientists. But I will say, yeah, check out Montreal in the summer. Okay, so Jonathan, um, as you said, you've been you know working in this area of sleep science. How did you get into this area? What did you study at university? What led you into the area of sleep? So essentially, I'm a bachelor in uh, psychology, and uh, here in, in Canada, in Quebec, how it works to get from a your bachelor to a clinical psychologist you need to go through a phd uh but most of us we don't know it when you're at bachelor this is just the nature of being a student don't listen too much <laughs> so it's so now i'm i'm in, i'm in my last year of bachelor and I, i'm confronted to the the fact that i haven't done any volunteering i haven't done much in fact to actually make a case for myself to move on to a phd level uh, because I was way too concentrated on my sport. So one of the lab that was actually looking for people to help was a sleep lab. And I said, well, you know what? It's pretty kind of cool. It's a sleep lab. I don't sleep much because I travel too much. So might as well learn as well as working. And this just snowballed into now a master degree in chronic pain, uh, transcranial direct current stimulation and sleep. And then led, led me to my uh, PhD at Laval with Céline Bastien on uh, student athletes doing my PhD in psychology. Then I moved and did an internship with Michael Grandner back in the uh, University of Arizona, working with him. Go back to Montreal, continue and, and complete my PhD. And then Dr. Samuel hired me as the, the uh, director of athlete sleep services. So this is a very brief summary of how I end up there, meaning that it's all by sheer luck, essentially. <laughs> and I never intended to, to work in sleep. My goal was to work with athletes in psychology. And you know what? Probably the best thing that happened to me, that's the only best thing that will ever come out of procrastination is I'm in the sleep world now. Mm. But um, it's interesting you did an internship with Michael because Michael actually does some stuff in sort of psychology slash mental health in athletes. He's done some stuff with the International Olympic Committee and um, he yeah. runs that sort of behavioral medicine, sleep medicine area in Arizona. So it is a kind of a it is a kind of a nice uh, affinity, isn't it? It was. So in fact, so I <clears> did end up there because Michael is a very, very close friend to my uh, super my PhD supervisor, Céline Bastien. And I just asked uh, Celine one day, you know what, I, I'd like to do an internship in, in the States. Uh, who would you recommend? Uh, and you know what I love? Sleep, athletes, sport. Who sh where should I go? And well, there's only one place for you, my friend. And it was with uh, Michael Grandner. And if, if anyone on the podcast know who Michael Grandner is, it only took an email and he said yes, because Michael yeah. Grandner says yes to everyone. Yeah, he's such a nice guy. He, <laughs> he says yes to everything. Yeah, he's got like, hey, yeah, yeah. let's do that. Let's do this. Yeah. Probably one I of the nicest like academics I've ever met in my life. He's just so nice. Like oh, some academics are yeah. really harsh. Michael is just, he's so nice. He is. Yeah. And I learned a great deal with him there. Learn about uh, at every level. So how you deal with with the athlete one-on-one -on -one, and then how you deal with the organization uh, with, with uh, these uh, decision maker at the uh, university level and then at team level and, and so on and so forth. So it was one of the, uh, the great moment uh, uh, I had was learning from one of the very best in our field and how do you change your approach at every level in your 
own uh, community, which is sleep. You're trying to advocate for sleep. You're trying to make your way with sleep, but you need a different approach depending on who is the audience. And Michael was very great at teaching me this. And now I'm, I'm, I'm as lucky as I could. I'm now uh, ended uh, with Dr. Samuel, who is also a pioneer in the uh, sleep and performance uh, field. And he's having a very similar approach to Michael, which is never forget that you're trying to advocate for sleep and health, but never forget that the audience will not understand your message the same way. It depends on how you actually convey it. Yeah, I think that's a very good point, Jonathan. I think independent of sleep, this is a very important message for people trying to make change in any sort of discipline because the message you give to people um, doing the job on a day-to-day basis versus the supervisor versus the manager versus the executives versus the scientific committee is always going to be very different in how you frame it. And they'll have different um, needs and wants. They'll have different things that are important for them. And if you don't get those key messages true, you're basically wasting your time, you know, with them. And I think it's um, because we see the same in mining, oil and gas, a lot of industry stuff that we do. We kind of often, we we do actually break into two things, like individuals, like you said, and organizational stuff as well. So a lot of the recommendations or the factors or our approach are split into individual and organizational. And I think you're right. It's for athletes, it's for business, it's for anybody. And getting that message is so key. And I think... Um, we still have a lot, of, lot, a lot of ways to improve as scientists, but I think it's a, an important thing to remember, no matter who you are, about the message at different levels is, 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 is vital. No, you're right when you say that we still have a long way to go uh, as scientists. I think we sometimes we get lost into what we do best, which is working with numbers, interpreting data, and, and one of our flaws is actually making all these inf- this information digestible for everyone mm. and marketing ourselves. So more and more of, of the uh, scientific uh, people now are getting out there and trying to build their own business and market sleep, which I think is great. Now sleep is getting to that next stage. But again, it's they're not going out there with P-values and beta. <laughs> and, and now yeah. they're actually changing their approach they're, uh, they're essentially using the uh, the, sell, the elevator sales pitch if you can sell your pitch in a elevator conversation then you will be able to reach all these executive uh thinker and decision maker and i think it's great for the sleep community we're, we're getting there we're refining our approach and eventually we'll have the the, the word of sleep out once and for good yeah no i think it's i think it's great um, Jonathan, now let's let's um, let's switch on to this paper you've had published um, recently, which was kind of the the background for this podcast today. Because you had this great paper. Speaking of Michael, Michael was on it. Charles was on it. Uh, Amy Bender, who's been on the podcast, we know as well. Uh, Jesse's been on it, and Jesse uh, recently presented at the Sleep for Performance seminar. I think Jesse recently finished his PhD. Uh, he's moving into his uh, internship, so he will finish uh, next year. Next I year, think. okay, yeah. And then Olivia Walsh as well. I think I had some conversations with Olivia, but I don't know her very well. Um, She's working. She uh, she founded a, a Rescope. Um, I hope I'm pronouncing this right. Uh, yeah. She is very, very, a very talented uh, sarcasm uh, researcher and a very talented individual with statistics. She is a must add for everyone that is listening. 
If you are interested in circadian rhythm, she is a must add on Twitter and everywhere. I think it's Arascope. Again, it, it is, yeah, right. it, that, 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 that's right. Yeah, it you're is. correct. Yeah. And you need to uh, seek her work. She is phenomenal. Yeah, and so that was the that was the sort of uh, the team here working on this paper, looking at the association between time zone changes, travel distance, and performance. A retrospective analysis of the 2013 to 2020 National Hockey League data. Now, this paper is very mathematical, right? So, which is not my strong point, but I do want to talk about it in the sort of it's uh, from a from a high level view. First of all, can you explain what National Hockey League is first? Before, if anybody's never seen hockey, what is that? And can you describe the competition? How many games? What's the sort of demand on players within the hockey league from an organizational level and from individuals as well? So the National Hockey League, so NHL, is the uh, the most important sport in Canada. (laughs) 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 So if 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 you want to get a Canadian talking, just say the word hockey, poutine, or maple syrup, and you you last them for hours. So you know you know you know Brendan Duffy. Yeah, I know Brendan Duffy. Brendan Duffy told me that you were actually a, a New York Rangers fan. Is that true? <laughs> it's not. <laughs> no. I'm, a, I'm a Montreal Canadian fan. So we're, we're a harsh rival, in fact. So no, so the so hockey, it's it's played on ice. So it's it's three forward, two defensemen, and one and one goaltender. So six against six. Uh, you run with uh, four lines of. Uh, of forward and three line of defensemen. So you have 12 forward, you have six defensemen, and you have an extra goaltender if needed, but this is very rare. Uh, these are, the game is played with a three period of 20 minutes, and there is 82 games per calendar year. And then 82. you can add 82. And then you can add the uh, preseason game, which usually you will have between five and seven. And then depending if you move on to the playoff, which are four best of seven, uh, you have four rounds if you are to winning all. So you need 16 additional victories after the season to actually live the cup. So this is the, uh, in a very brief summary, what the uh, National Hockey League is. is, And it's a uh, full-on contact sport. Uh, And I think it's the only, only sport except MMA and uh, and boxing that you are allowed to fight. <laughs> so let's. Why are you allowed to fight in hockey? Why is that allowed that you can stop and the referees just allow people to start punching? And the, and and I've sat in bars in Montreal and watched this. They even put up a tail of the tape, and they put yep. up like how big the two guys are about to square off, and the fights just start uh, out of nowhere. And then they go, oh, he's six one and two hundred fifty pounds versus five ten and two hundred fifty pounds. He's got a good right hook, and I'm like going. Is wait now? Is this MMA or hockey? It's bizarre. Yeah, no, it's it's part of the culture of hockey. As to where this emerged, I have no idea. We would have to look into the uh, the history of of the 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 player the, the rule book of hockey. But I think it's always been there. Uh, some will argue that it's to uh, protect your skilled players, so you always add that goon, so you will be on the ice to protect the uh, the skilled player. So if anyone touches him. Then you will have to confront your, your your fighter. So this was the idea. Nowadays, it's a little less true. Uh, you see less and less fighting because of all these concussion and CTE yeah. and, and, and all and all and all. And quite frankly, now there's also a shift in the culture of hockey that most people are more entertained by 
by the skill plays than rather mm -hmm. the very robust or fighting game. So we all we all love that that big body check that serve a purpose to to retrieve the actual puck, but a body check just to inflict a body check to your opponent. This is weaning off, and so the fighting game is also weaning off. But again, if you've been to a game uh, on site when two people are fighting, it just get the people going. So I don't think it's going anywhere anytime soon. But does it make sense? I personally don't think it does. Uh, anymore but yeah. again i'm not here to to say who's gonna fight and who's not gonna fight it's a very very uh, hot topic in canada by the way that fighting game uh it, this is going on for years now should we remove the fighting should we not uh at lower uh, in lower uh, league uh people are not allowed to fight in some league now Mm -hmm. And if you do fight, you will be suspended five games. And if you fight yeah, a second yeah. time, you're suspending 10 games. And the National Hockey League, you just have to sit five minutes. So I, I always say, like, you know, when I watch that, when I see those clips of hockey, I think if you want to fight, go and do boxing or MMA. That's, that's just my, that's just what I think. Mm -hmm. I think, like, why are you playing hockey if you just want to fight? I think if, if, I you're, that, if you're that much of a tough guy, get in a ring or an octagon and do that, you know? So but anyway. uh, it's not the same kind of training. I, yeah. I don't know. I, again, if they have to fight, how many, how many fights do they have per year compared to boxing? I think in hockey, if you, you, you get punched maybe, what, 10, 15 times a year, that's pretty much. Mm. That's pretty much it. So that's pretty why the reason they're choosing hockey over the actual boxing <laughs> MMA. All right. And so with the National Hockey League, there's obviously teams from America in it as well. So um, sort of what... Are we, does it cover all of, of North America as a continent, as in Canada and the US, or is it just a certain amount of towns or cities in the US that play as well? And is it broken into like East and West conferences, like in, in baseball, or how, how does that work? It's pretty much the same way as baseball uh, and NBA. In fact, a lot of uh, cities uh, such as, so New York is a pretty good example. So the Madison Square Garden is the home of the New York Rangers for the NHL but it's also the home of the uh, New York Knicks. So mm. the uh, New York Ranger can play on Saturday night and then they will transform the arena so the NBA player will play the following day or vice versa. Uh, so it's across Canada. So in Canada, there is uh, Montreal, Ottawa, Toronto, Winnipeg, Calgary, Edmonton, and Vancouver. And so this is across the entire country except the Maritime. And then you will have in the, in the United States, so the East Coast, then the, the, the East Coast, West Coast, uh, more central, more uh, north. So it covers pretty much the entire uh, map of the U.S., more in the uh, big center. Uh, because it's if I'm being not as biased as I am usually with hockey, this is not the most favorite <laughs> sport in the U.S. Yeah. It's behind the NFL, it's behind the NBA, yeah. it's behind the MLB. So they need to be uh, within uh, these big agglomeration cities. So think about New York, Chicago, Boston. Uh, Boston, of course, Philadelphia, Los Angeles, and so on and so forth. And so this is where the, the, the teams will be. So mm. this will uh, involve a lot of traveling, of course. Yeah. I remember one time, you just reminded me, I used to go to Boston a little bit as well. And I remember being in Boston one time when I had a Bruins t-shirt on. I was sitting at a bar eating some chicken wings after being yeah. for a run. And uh, this guy was just chatting away to me and he goes... Uh, you know, like, what are you doing here, blah, 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 whatever, and I said, I'm going to Montreal next, and he goes, hey, I'll give you the tip, he goes, 
Don't wear that fucking Boston Bruins t-shirt in Montreal unless you want to fucking fight. And if you're going to fight with that t-shirt, you better fucking win. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm not surprised. So Boston, Boston and Philadelphia are renowned around the league to be that that brutal city, that, that rough, that rougher city. So, and that, this is all, all good. So, I mean, this is all good in spirit, of course. When you go in Boston with a Montreal Habs t-shirt or oh, shirt, yeah. you better make it known that you're coming in friendly or yeah. else you may have trouble. You may have legit yeah, yeah, trouble yeah. and vice versa. So, no, no, no. I'm pretty sure you have that same kind of rivalry uh, in rugby in, in Australia. Uh, but yeah, Montreal, Montreal, Boston, Montreal, Toronto uh, will be the two big rivalry from a Montreal standpoint. And Philadelphia just has a it factor with everyone around the league because it's Philadelphia and they have Rocky, I guess. <laughs> uh, so, Jonathan, um, with this study, after a half an hour of talking crap, we'll get to this study. Um, within this study, uh, you looked at seven years of data. And this had 17,000 games. This is a phenomenal amount of games. And basically, you did this big mathematical analysis looking at the sort of the direction of travel. So I presume that people crisscross the country or the, or the continent will go from like, you know, the Vancouver Canucks will go to Montreal, then they go back, then they might go to New York, and then they might go back, then they might go to Boston, they might go back, and Philadelphia be doing the same. So people are constantly crisscrossing the North American content. And at the maximum, it's a three-hour time difference. Is that correct? Yes. So this is the maximum they will ever reach. It's three-hour time difference. So technically, is this jet lag or travel fatigue? So I suppose the definition is, yeah. does jet lag occur after two hours or three hours? Or are we just on that sort of cusp of technical jet lag? So again, so, so for everyone that do travel a lot, so I never had any trouble with one hour, two hour traveling jet lag, time zone difference, whatever terminology we want to use. Uh, but when it comes to three hours, you, you will feel it. So I, mm. from a personal experience, I would say three hour would be considered a jet lag. And I think this is the actual threshold is three hour. Anything below three hour will be considered travel fatigue or travel management. So this is why we had to go back and forth, in fact, with the reviewer on this. So was this travel or management, travel fatigue or jet lag? And one of the paper that was referred, I think you're on that paper with Peter Fowler. Yeah. Uh, and then you, you, with rugby, you have much bigger jet lag than we have because you're going to South Africa and Argentina, I believe. That's correct, yeah. So you're, yeah. You're, you're talking about not only jet lag, but massive jet lag. Hmm. Whereas where we, where we were coming from with our paper is, it's true hmm. that it is only three hours, but this is, when you look at it a, from a linear perspective. So Vancouver goes to Montreal, this is three hour, but you have to go back. Mm. So by going back, do you negate the three hour they just flew or you actually add it up? Because now you're going back and forth depending on how long you stay on the East Coast side. So whenever Vancouver travels to Montreal, the league is not crazy. They will make them play Montreal, then Ottawa, then Toronto, than probably Boston. So they make them stay on the East Coast and make it worth their while. And then yeah. they travel back. So when they do travel back, they are accustomed to their jet lag now. They're at zero jet lag on the East Coast. So when they go back home, even though it's home, they are still going to face a 
westward jet lag now. So this was the actual uh, rationale behind, well, even though it's only three hours, it does accumulate throughout the year. And so, yeah, so like you said, we'll take the, the, the Vancouver Canucks are a good example because they're like on the West Coast. So it's equivalent to me here in, in Western Australia. It's like me traveling to Melbourne. It's the same as the Canucks traveling to, to Montreal. So you're right. When they get there, maybe the first game, they might be at a disadvantage, but then they'll gradually adapt, obviously, because for every mm-hmm. um, hour we go in an eastward direction, it can take up to a day. So three days maximum. But then actually they might have worse jet lag when they come home. Because if they come home really quickly and then play a game, it's not actually a home advantage. They'll just be as disrupted as the team that's following them in there. Or potentially, you may have the New York Rangers that have been in Vancouver for a week and could be adapted. So you don't really know what's the advantage. So, yeah. Well, this is one of the... So when we talk with the teams, so teams are not listening to that point yet in terms of travel management. So... The, the old saying in hockey is, well, the first uh, game after a travel is always a hard one. Well, why do you think it's hard? <laughs> because you've been on the road for X number of days, sleeping in hotel rooms, uh, being on the road. Now you're accumulating travel fatigue. And then you come back home, you top it off with a cherry with jet lag, even mm-hmm. though it's home ice advantage or home court advantage. Now you're facing two, two enemies instead of one, which is jet lag and travel, man- and travel fatigue. So <clears throat> people are not, uh, manager and teams are not yet uh, listening to this. And <clears throat> when we, we structure teams travel um, schedule, it's we look at these. When you have an opponent that's coming back from a big trip, make sure that you're waiting for them in their own city. Therefore, you will adapt to your time zone and they will not. So the, that home ice advantage will be diluted. Mm. Yeah, this is um, this is very interesting. So do you know, Jonathan, then as well, when these um, when we talk about let's say travel fatigue first before um, let's let's just kind of separate these out for a minute so we can work through them. So travel fatigue will be either traveling within the same time zone, so maybe Vancouver to like Kitimat, or, yeah, something like that, yeah, or you know, Montreal to Toronto, same time zone. Yeah. Yeah. So this might be just like travel fatigue from traveling. Then you might have fatigue from training and playing a game and staying away. Um, so that's that type of fatigue. What factors influence that fatigue? So, and, and this may not be part of the paper, but just in general, because you've been been around hockey. Do people, um, do they train early in the morning? Do they train late at night? Do they have their own bedroom or do they share rooms? Is there lots of media while they're away? What sort of factors influence their fatigue um, outside, of, uh, so outside the, of the game? So definitely the media, <clears throat> media attention. So the media attention. So when you have a team like, uh, sorry, <clears throat> like Montreal traveling, Montreal will always travel with a horde of media because <laughs> this is one of the most sought team across the league uh, and so is Toronto and so is the New York Rangers hello Ben Duffy uh, and uh, that will be pretty much these teams so after a game you're exhausted by the game but then you have your uh, media uh, the media covering you then you will go back to the hotel and in hockey you have that culture of early morning training so the uh, the morning uh, skate so you'll just go out and skate for half an hour, 60 minutes, 
just to loosen up and then you'll have your afternoon nap and then you'll have your meal and then you drive to the arena again. So I, we all do understand that it's important to warm up, and, but again, you're warming up in the morning, preventing yourself from sleeping, mm. from recovering. And then you top this off with a two, three hour nap in the afternoon and you're not considering the actual sleep inertia. And you all see them, they walk to the rink with a coffee, not a small one, not the European style coffee, but the real American style coffee, which is probably two pounds. (laughs) You're probably drinking, talking a liter. So now you're seeing that culture moving from a sleep perspective and you're asking yourself, well, how do they recover? They're, 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 they're up early in the morning. Sure, they do nap. Let's say they nap, but now they're fighting sleep inertia. Because they're fly, fighting sleep inertia in the afternoon, they're drinking that atrocious number, uh, amount of coffee. They're playing. They have the media to face, and now they're supposed to sleep in a hotel room. Mm. How are they supposed to recover? And then you, you have red eye if you have back-to-back games. And we can go back on this. Should you fly a red eye on back-to-backs or should you sleep in the actual city you're in and fly the following morning? And so this is, this is all the kind of thing that will impact your recovery. Are you a, a rookie or are you a veteran? So rookie, sleep better at home and sleep worse on the road. And veteran is the inverse. Veteran will sleep better on the road than at homes because they don't have a kid to look at. So you have a 30-year-old player at home. He may have a very young kid disturbing mm. his sleep. On the road, because he's a veteran player, a key player, he will have his own bedroom. The rookie, on the road, you're 18, 19, 20. What do you do on the road in Vegas? Yeah. And you're two, you're two per room. Even though they have curfew, they always find a way. And they find a way so much that every games now that occurs after a trip to Vegas, because there's a team in Las Vegas, now you will have a uh, different odd ratio if you are to bet on them on every sporting betting uh, website. So this is how much of an impact playing in Las Vegas has, not the actual game in Vegas, but the game following. Following, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because you go out after the game. So that game after Vegas, if you're the team waiting for them, you want to be ready because these, this game is supposed to be almost a must win. So this is not only about sleep, but it is also about recovery, as you mentioned. Mm. This is fascinating because this is so akin to other sports as well when you have these evening games like in basketball or in Australian roots football or in rugby as well. And like you're saying, depending on the location, it's this is where it becomes multidimensional. It's not just about sleep. It's about what we spoke about, these organizational leadership factors and so on. So now we're t- starting to talk about do you manage how do you manage the culture of players to uh, um, have you know sleep being important and do you basically fly them out of that city straight away after the game to manage their behavior or do you treat them like adults and say right we all want you to get sleep and then we'll fly out the next morning and have adequate recovery. So on that question about flying out straight after the game or um, waiting and sleeping and flying out the next day, did you find and did you look at that in this paper? Was that something that you analyzed? Yeah. Yeah. So there's, so there's two ways we look at the paper. So priority priority of being home or in a, in a hotel or flying immediately after. And nothing significant statistically. But this is the so this is the always a challenge when you work on on on, on any stats in, in sport 
it's not because it's not significant statistically that it will not be significant uh, clinically or uh, performance-wise. Mm. Uh, we will rerun these analyses with, with probably niche game, such as the Vegas Swan, to figure this out. But so far, if, if we're looking at the data, no. Flying right after the game or waiting a day doesn't make a difference, unfortunately, for, for my hypothesis. <laughs> So it makes no difference at the moment, yeah. But like you're saying, that that could be that could be different for specific teams because we're looking at the the season, we're looking at the whole season, and we're looking at all the teams, we're looking for seven years. So some stuff could kind of get washed out. But for individuals, even within a team, it could be a drastic impact on their performance. It could, and yeah, I'll give you one one example. So I met with one team in, in Calgary. So it was not the Flames. So it was the opposing team. So I met I met with them at their hotel room. Uh, hotel floor they have an entire floor for them i'm meeting with the uh the sport and performance uh, analytic guy and he just shows me where the uh, the player are eating just to show you how strong the culture is and i'm looking at this and there's a ice cream machine and a sunday machine i'm mm. like what the I'm like why I'm like, why why do you have an ice cream machine in there i mean you're 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 preferring to to actually play a game of hockey at a, at a pro level Oh, you must remember who Wayne Gretzky is. So for you, uh, all of you does not know who Wayne Gretzky is. He's the hockey player with all the record in the record book. So most goal, most assist, most point, most of everything. And one day back in the 80s, he did eat a Sunday and scored five goals. They still eat that Sunday before their game because of one game from a alien type of player. And this is how the culture of hockey just demonstrated how unrealistic, unconventional, and very hard to move and change is. So when they say after the game, we deserve a little time off in Vegas, in Sunrise, which is Florida, or in New York, good luck changing that. Mm. So there's also that aspect of it's hard to change in the name of recovery. But is there a psychological benefit to that, Shantan, where like people are psychologically it makes them feel better is there a psychological benefit towards that that you can that you could measure like we're having the sunday or having a beer or <laughs> the ritual of it like actually helps the team and it's something that the team bonds around culturally independent of sleep and recovery i would say it does to some point so this again so this will be me coming in with my sleep guy perspective and my yeah. psychology background and as you work with teams and and, and athletes the culture within the culture is important. So if, if you finding more and more athlete bonding around this one beer or around this one Sunday, it's, it's not only about the goal, which is always winning. It's about what is the actual process to get you through, uh, through the entire season, the playoff, and then winning. What are your goal-oriented process to actually reach your goal? If you're making this, the culture oriented toward the process instead of only the goal, you'll have a winning culture, a mm -hmm. winning team. So going out after a game, sure, no problem. You all know the detriment to it, but we also have positive. Can we find the balanced way of using that to our advantage without creating a detriment to our performance? This is where, more where I stand now. If you would have asked me that question two years ago, three years ago, with a more tunnel vision, I would have said, no, sleep is priority. 
and whether or not you like it, you have to go back to the hotel and you sleep it off. And uh, I don't care about what you do after the game. It's sleep and nothing else. I yeah. think there is a bigger uh, perspective around this, uh, but you need to treat them like adult, but you also need them. You also need to guide them and give them uh, flexible boundaries. Yeah. And I think that's um, interesting. I was speaking about this yesterday with somebody as well, the same thing. I think um, <clears throat> in the sleep world, when we're giving advice to teams or shift workers or people, well, we want to have routine and discipline. Um, I often uh, recommend ranges as opposed to just definitive, like be in bed by nine o'clock and get up at six. I'm like, okay, you want to get consistency into your routine? Try to go to bed between nine and 10, get up between five and six. Giving people ranges allows for a bit more flexibility and it's a bit more achievable. So it's nearly like a kind of a control chart in engineering or in manufacturing. We're trying to reduce that variation and to get those habits and behaviors in. Because for people to leap from, you know, going to bed one night at eight o'clock, 12 o'clock the next night, 11 o'clock, 10 p.m., and this constant variation, which leads to social jet lag, if you give people like a zone, you know, and make it achievable, maybe it's, if it's that more, that erratic, you maybe said to people, right, I want you to go to bed between half 10 at night and half 11. And they want you to get like six out of seven nights in the next week in that zone and then wake up at these times because that, that becomes more achievable. And then it, it feels like they're not getting hit over the head and they're not getting in trouble. So because some nights you want to, you know, watch a TV show, you might be talking to a friend, you got something to do, you might be having a drink. And so those type of things are just as important, like you said. And I think that's where we have to look at it in the holistic balance of what's happening each day, each night, each week, each month and over a season to get that balance right. Because you know, people will just, you know, like you said with the message at the start, people will just um this thing they won't won't be engaged. They'll just like pull away and go, I'm not listening to this shit, really. No, definitely. And when when we talk about sleep, uh now it's it's really what sleep is, it's all about improving your quality of life. Yeah. This this is <clears throat> what this is. So your approach with having ranges is, in my opinion, the right approach. I use the exact same thing. It's impossible, in my opinion, to have a specific bedtime if you because it's putting too much pressure on sleep. And as much as you know, and as I know, the more attention you put towards sleep, the less likely you are to have good sleep. So if you're giving ranges, first thing first, you're reducing that pressure towards sleep, reducing that pre-anticipatory anxiety towards sleep. And you're making it such a realistic objective to obtain that people will step in and believe in your approach. And you're also giving them almost a, a, a first step in to see this is already a success. We, are in, we have not reached the end of the procedure yet, but already with one advice, you're successful. You're able to go to bed between nine and 10 or 10 and 11. So now with already a success after the first visit, you're giving them an opportunity to improve every visit instead of no this is a slow process trust me when i say it's nine o'clock you'll get there eventually so you're going more with the approach of of well you're not there yet it's a, almost a failure but trust me you'll get there i prefer the other approach as you have everything is a success within the boundaries let's walk together to the finish line mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's uh, it's it's so key. Um, coming coming back to this paper, um, Jonathan, you found that um, there was when we talk about you know we had the travel fatigue discussion there, but then obviously jet lag is when we cross those multiple time zones in east or west direction. So in this paper, you found that game distance. So the further they traveled for the game, is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. And their interaction associated with goal differential. 
um, basically all of these things, there's other ones here as well. And like I said, this is very heavy mathematical. It's way beyond my capability. But all of these things here, I'm going to read this in more detail <laughs> and maybe go back to university and do a maths degree. <laughs> but um, <laughs> all of these things, because you were looking at the performance and the outcome, all of these things interacted in both directions, whether it be east or west, and negatively impacted the NHL athletes in terms of their performance. So is it fair to say that the more they traveled and the further they traveled, that the less the less chance they had of winning? Yeah, exactly. So one of the things I was looking at, it's the paper uh, from, I think, uh, 2013 in the NFL. So they were saying that if you travel uh, a West Coast team to an East Coast team, you are more likely to win because the the game will be played at seven. Yeah. So for the West Coast team, they will truly be four o'clock in their internal uh, biological uh, body. Whereas if the East Coast team travel West and the game is at seven, it's truly 10 p.m. for them. But the NFL only has one game per week. So you can look at this in a linear fashion. Whereas for the NHL, as we mentioned, you can have uh, four games within seven days. So that linear way of looking at, at the travel is, is unrealistic and unfair for, for the uh, scientific uh, approach. So we look at how far was the game. So if I'm taking Chicago traveling to Dallas, which is within the same time zone, it is 1,500 kilometer, kilometer. So we're talking only travel fatigue. And if I'm looking at Chicago against Detroit, which is barely 300 kilometers, but you have one hour time difference. So according to the first theory, the linear theory, when you have a jet lag included, you should have a bigger detriment to your uh, other ratio of winning. <clears throat> what we demonstrated when, is when you travel longer distance, greater distance, this is the biggest impact on your other ratio or your uh, likelihood of winning. Then when you add to the actual model, the quadratic view of, of traveling. So the accumulation of jet lag. So plus two, minus one, plus three, minus three, going eastward, westward, and, and so on and so forth. When you cripple the, that all in, the eastward, westward has no bearing on mm. improving or decreasing. It has the same determined impact, which means the greater the time zone difference is, the lower your chance are to win. Therefore, the greater distance travel included. So this is what this paper has found, is you cannot look with every sport with the same type of lens. The NFL is a very particular uh, sport that has only one game per, per week, whereas hockey doesn't, the NBA does not, and the MLB even further. from oh, That's even crazier, yeah. So... This is why we look at this with that approach of the accumulation of that uh, jet lag, which is why we are having a quadratic uh, approach. And this is thanks to Jesse and Olivia, not me. <laughs> so basically, the longer the season, and then obviously, then the longer the season goes, the more the travel, the worse it gets for every team, not just one team. Yeah, for every so every, team. every Everybody's kind of normalized. It get, it's getting worse and worse. Yeah. Absolutely. And this is why we <clears throat> then, uh, integrated in the model the uh, the uh, usual suspect so the uh, we call that the the team ability so i was expecting and we were all expecting that on any given uh, season 
the uh, number one team will be less impacted by the uh, very last bottom of the rank team. And oh, this yeah. was included in the model. So those very good team were less impacted uh, compared to the, the worst of the worst team. And then uh, we look also at uh, home ice, home court advantage. Playing at home gives you an advantage. Also, you have the last change. So this is one of the rule in hockey. So if, if the home team makes a change, the opposing team cannot make a change. So this is giving you an advantage. And then you have the crowd behind you. You, you, you have everything going on for yourself. And then you, we also added the back-to-back uh, -back game, which means two games uh, in two days. And we uh, isolated the second game. So when you play two games within 48 hours, most likely you will be more fatigued at that uh, second game. And so these three variables were the bigger predictors. And that we just wanted to confirm so mentioned that we were not too biased with our approach of sleep and travel. Uh, even when, con when controlling for these three obvious factors in sport, the greater the distance, the greater the time zone difference had the biggest impact regardless of the travel direction. And this is a big one because most of the sleep and the travel uh, community says that if you travel eastward, you have a better chance of winning. And mm -hmm. if you travel westward, you have a bigger chance of losing. Well, based on what we found <clears throat> over that 17,000 game, this is not true now. We're challenging, in fact, that view. And we are inviting other researchers to actually replicate this and see if they are confirming what we found. Or in fact, if there are no, see, you were wrong. <laughs> and we need to, to move on with that discussion. Well, there's two. There, when I read this paper, Jonathan, there's two sports that come to mind. One is uh, one that you said, the Super Rugby competition in the Southern Hemisphere, which is a domestic competition that before COVID spanned four countries. Argentina, actually five. Argentina, Japan, New Zealand, Australia, and South Africa. And that's considered a domestic competition, right? Wow. And in one of the papers, which you've probably seen that, my, that Tim Smitty's and I put, uh, put out in the Journal of Sports Science a few years ago, this one team where we were working with the Western Force went from Australia to South Africa to Argentina and back to Australia within 16 days. Now, that's that, that on, a, on an international competitive level, that's crazy. Never mind a domestic competition. Like, it just makes no sense, right? And the, the league itself um, at the time, Sanzar, did not consider any travel fatigue and jet lag variables. It's just basically where it can plug in for, you know, uh, game availability, media, where they can sell the most tickets. It's all commercially driven. And so I think, first of all, in that super rugby competition, that this, this type of analysis could be replicated to see what's happening. And the other one as well, which I don't know whether it would work or not, would be Formula One. Mm -hmm. Now, Formula One, as you know, lots of travel fatigue and jet lag. Um, and obviously there's been lots of disruption during COVID, but classically, you know, it's 20 odd races, 10 teams, 20 drivers constantly traveling around the world. And with the added benefit of going to places like Mexico City, where it's at altitude, where, yep. you know, there's not only will the car perform differently, but humans will as well. And for anybody that's listened that probably may not know, when we go to altitude, we can often have difficulty falling asleep, getting into stage one. So we've got difficulty with breathing, we've got lots of activity, EEG wise. And if we have a sleep disorder, such as sleep related breathing disorders like sleep apnea, it can be very difficult. And this can be exacerbated at altitude as well. So we have all of these things as well. So they're the two kind of sports that really 
quickly, I think, wow, I wonder what would be the advantage or disadvantage of those. In Super Rugby, like NHL, they're kind of crisscrossing at different times, so definitely you could look at that. But in Formula One, it's like a kind of a circus, just going from one city to the next, so everybody's going the same. And then how would you kind of parse out the difference between the teams? So like you, like you, you were saying, like the top team versus the lowest tier team, and would that be an advantage? But there's so many other variables, it would be hard to isolate, I think. What's your thoughts well, on those two? For the F1, I would definitely isolate the, uh, the mechanic guy. These will be my first one I would isolate. So, of course, the driver. The driver is, is, is an obvious one. You, you isolate the driver. The driver is uh, how do you perform any, any mistakes, omission, commission. So, these will be the kind of thing I would probably be looking at. But one of the things where you can be winning or losing a race is with the mechanic guy. Mm. Who's going to make that mistake? changing the tires or this a lot's can happen and it's in a fraction of a second you stop for between five and nine seconds so you need to be sharp and not only that then i will isolate the manager of the race uh within your team so who's making the decision on when you stop when you do not stop and as well as you know jet lag and steep will have an impact on your uh, decision making so this is how i would actually see it with 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 the F1. As for the uh, super, uh, super rugby, <laughs> from a Canadian perspective, having to travel from Australia to Argentina and then back to South Africa and then Japan and back to Australia within 16 days. And I do know which paper you're talking about. When I was reading them, like, this is ludicrous. Yeah. How, how are they even surviving this? I would not even able, be able to survive this on a, a vacation trip. Yeah, that's now exactly what taking, I said. Yeah. They're taking hit. They have to perform. They have to be men and all on the field. And, and, and this is just crazy. So how how do you what do you look at? Probably the injury rate. Uh, probably the uh, these little hill, illness. Probably more likely to to be ill. Uh, a, a cold, flu. Uh, I would probably be looking at the uh, the likelihood of having uh, cramps. Their, their lower limb cramps. Uh, nowadays, you could be looking, of course, at, at, at HRV, seeing how they, they recover and how, how, how great or poorly do they recover. But with the jet lag you're, you're, you're experiencing within that league, I mean, the, the opportunity are just infinite into de- demonstrating how bad jet lag can be for the mm-hmm. very fittest of all. <laughs> this is unlimited, but this would be this would be something I'd be looking in. But the F1 definitely to me resonate a lot with the mechanic guy. It takes one mistake to derail the entire race. Yeah, I think you're right. I think um and we've seen that as well, that you know, it's the reaction time and um you anyway is an F1 fan. So typically, and if you're not an F1 fan, just very briefly, typically in a week of an F1 race to have practice one. Practice two, that might happen on a Friday. So two one-hour blocks in the last season. It used to be 90 minutes, so two one-hour blocks. Then you've got, actually, I'll back it up because let's say um, it's a bit like fly and fly out mining. They might do a, a race, could be back-to-back races in two weeks in a row or sometimes three weeks in a row at the worst-case scenario. So they might do two weeks in a row. So they might like fly in from um, London to Montreal. As an example, a lot of teams are based in, in, in like sort of England or Italy. So they might fly into Montreal They'll do media on the Wednesday and um, there'll be things to be done there, trying to get over jet lag after flying in on Tuesday. 
Wednesday media, Thursday's kind of garage setup, a bit of calibration. Friday's practice one, practice two, and they'll be separated by a period of time, media in between, media before, team meetings and so on. So it's a quite a busy day. Then on the Saturday, it could be uh, practice three around midday. And then you have to qualifying to see where people start on the grid on the, on the Saturday evening or Saturday afternoon. That typically would be at the same time as the race. So if the race is at 3 p.m., qualifying would be at 3 p.m. Then um, then to have the race on the Sunday. Um, and like you were saying, Jonathan, depending on the travel fatigue, the jet lag, the cumulative fatigue, the change on the sleep environment, the demands on them for that week, whether it be the driver or the pit crew or the engineers or the team manager, all these variables play in. And then you have in a race, it's somewhere around 90 minutes, um, roughly, a race will last for, depending on the track, it can be anywhere from 50 to about 70-odd laps. But there will be different pit stop strategies within those races, depending on the tires that people start on, depending on the weather conditions and so on. So you might see, you know, typically two pit stops in a race that's going to occur in general. Um, but again, that, that can be variable as well. But when people come into the pits, a pit stop can last anywhere from, I think like the record's like 1.9 or two seconds up to as far as three or four seconds, but probably the average is about 2.5, 2.6 roughly, we'll say. But you can see people going out, and this happened actually in Mercedes a couple of years ago, they put the wrong tires on the wrong car. So two drivers, I think it was in Abu Dhabi, they put the drivers from the, the wheels from, and I could be getting this wrong, from driver one, it could be like, I think it was with George Russell, to put Valtteri Bottas's tires on George, no, Lewis's tires on, who was that? Was it Lewis or Valtteri? Anyway, so to put the, the tires of one driver on the other and then they had to come back in and change them back because that was illegal to do that. So those little decision-making things getting mixed up in the garage could be potentially those lapses in attention and cognition could be related to sleep. Or then we see people basically not putting a wheel on properly and that leads into those delays, which then could can cause people to race. So I think, I think it's interesting to look at in that. And then you also might want to look at things like um, uh, crashes as well. Now, I know Definitely. things are out, out of control, but you know, if you're not concentrating or lapsing attention, you're driving at like 300 kilometers an hour at some points and you're not kind of switched on, then it's, you know, it's bad. Yeah, and, and F1 is, is one of that sport, these sports that it's a fraction of a second is the decision required between life and death. Yeah. Even though they have the allo now, they're they're improving tremendously years after years. But as you mentioned, they're going between two and three hundred k's an hour. Mm. So it can be that fraction of a second, the decision between life and death. And so we're now it's it's a dire uh, consequence, but it's still a a, a realistic uh, risk for them. And and this may trickle down from the the mechanic guy. Uh, if he doesn't put the right the right tire the right way and so on and so forth, or a poor decision on the type of tire depending on the uh, the heat of the surface at that time, I mean a lot can go on. But decision making with sleep, as much as uh, as everyone knows, it's it's it goes it's intertwined. One mm. does not go without the other one. Yeah, it's very interesting. Um, maybe we should talk after this. I have an idea. <laughs> um, I'm all here. I'm all here. I, I, have a, I have a very good idea. We'll keep it secret for now. Um, so, Jonathan, uh, kind of wrapping up on this paper, what would you recommend to teams who are traveling um, in these directions, you know, up to three hours? So here in Australia, I might have like an Australian rules football team that are doing similar travel or, you know, football teams like soccer teams in, the, in, in Europe. What would be your kind of recommendations in general? And I know everything is going to be nuanced, but in general, what would you recommend to people doing this travel in sports? 
Uh, first thing first, you, you want to prepare. Uh, as everything with a human and, and, and human behavior, the human is better when prepared than to react to a challenge. So we ought to be prepared to our schedule and, and, and sport. So we don't want to be reacting to a two-hour jet lag. So preparing for it, knowing when it is coming our way. So it's the second week of October or second week of January, you know you're gonna have to face these travel. So this is the first thing I would say to everyone, have a schedule manager that will prepare your team to those horrendous jet lag you're gonna face. Then how you prepare for a jet lag? It's with these, it, it, when it comes to jet lag, it's the presence and absence of light. So knowing what you should do, should you be shielding from light? Should you be exposing yourself to light depending at what time you're flying or you're taking an early morning flight or you're taking a late evening flight? So depending on what and where you're going, it's a strategy of light, a strategy of absence of light and a strategy of, of recovery, not necessarily sleep, but it's most likely going to be a circadian rhythm uh, strategies. And managing that light exposure or shielding uh, strategy will help you adapt a little bit, bit uh, more quickly to your new environment. But this all start off with preparing with a schedule manager, so a sleep scientist, in terms of when should we implement those strategies and when should we not. I mean, it's not true that we should always use these blue blocking glasses for every trip we do. Yeah. And, and or melatonin. Melatonin yeah, yeah, is yeah. one of the big ones. So I, yeah. I, I'm not going to start on melatonin because uh, we can do I'm, I'm a, a week podcast long on this. But that melatonin should you take it before leaving, or in fact early in the morning to prolong your night. And and, and we see those athletes. Well, I'm not sleeping well, so I'm going to pop a 10 milligram melatonin just before going to bed. Yeah, sure, do it. <laughs> so. For everyone, you cannot see me, but that was very sarcastic. <laughs> yeah, but that, but, that, but that's a good that, that's actually a good point. I think we should just touch on that, Jonathan, because you're dead right. I see this in athletes, industry, shift workers, the whole lot. People think because they're wearing blue blocking glasses and because they're taking melatonin just before going to bed, that that's perfect. They treat melatonin like a sleeping tablet, like it's just going to knock them out. It could actually be making them worse, yeah. especially if they're insomniacs, circadian rhythm disorders, and so on. And the blue blocking glasses... People are like, oh, well, I'm doing spreadsheets and data analysis at 10 o'clock at night. But because I'm wearing blue blocking glasses, it's fine. But meanwhile, they're drinking a glass of wine and watching Netflix in the background. So they're constantly being bombarded with all this information. And their cortisol level is rising. Blue blocking glasses isn't going to do that. And so no. we have this kind of simplistic um, infantile approach to this because what people are, they're, hang they're getting hooked on all this marketing gimmicks of like melatonin and blue blocking glass and other stuff. And they're just applying them as if like they're solutions and they're not. It's the strategic no, application of them. It's a layer by layer approach. But again, we're in 2022. We are in a fast food society. Everything yeah. needs to be done now or even yesterday. We are in a society of life hack. Yeah. So you have blue blockers. It will make my sleep better. I'm just going to wear them 24 Seven. Yeah. This is how I will I will act my sleep. So the, it's 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 sad because we are making uh, some we are making some forward way with sleep with these little strategy, and then you have that out of the sleep community guy that sleep. I don't want to call them sleep coach because there's good sleep coach out there. This is not the right way to call them, but these. These life hack type of person that will sell you that melatonin and that blue blocker uh, as a uh, solve it all problem. Yeah. It is not. They need to be used on a strategic approach. 
and the blue blockers are a filter. They're not an armor. So if you do enter data on an expert Excel sheet at 10 p.m. with your glass of wine while Netflix is playing just next to you, your blue blocker won't do much. And you can have the entire bottle of melatonin if you want. You will not okay. get to sleep. And don't do it, please. This again, it was sarcastic. You should not use melatonin unless under the supervision of a sleep clinician, by the way. <laughs> so, yeah. so this, so these are could all be good strategies. But again, strategies means strategic approach, not a not a day to day approach. Perfect. Any final um, comments on the paper, Jonathan? Any kind of final messages you want to give people? Uh, I sure hope someone's going to read that paper and try to replicate it. We need replication in the industry of sleep. Not enough of this occurs. We take one paper for granted. Uh, I hope. I, I think our paper is good. Don't don't get me wrong. But I think it needs replication to actually confirm what we found, which is the uh, direction of travel does not mean that much. It's the accumulation of these travel that will have an impact. But in order to be absolutely sure on this, we need someone to take the ball and replicate against our data within another sport. So mm. rugby would be a good example. And just so we can generalize those findings. And this is one of the important things in research is we want to be able to generalize our finding to as much population as we can. So now we can say that in hockey for that Canadian North American sport, the accumulation of jet lag or time zone different is having a determinable impact. Is that true for NBA, Super uh, Rugby League, the F1? So this is what I would love to, to see in the near future, someone picking up that ball and trying to replicate exactly what we did. I would be ecstatic. Great. So I think that's a nice way to end this podcast. Jonathan, if people want to follow your work, are you on LinkedIn, Twitter, ResearchGate, Google Scholar? Where are you and how can they find you? I'm everywhere. I just don't know my. <laughs> so my my Twitter is uh, Joe Share One. So at Joe Share One. I'm also on uh, LinkedIn. I'm also on ResearchGate. I'm also on Google Scholar. Just type my name. There's not a lot of researcher that have that francophone name. So you should find me very easily. Uh, so Jonathan Share. Uh, just write sleep next to my name, and you'll find me. It's on. I'm very respons uh, responsive on it quickly. Uh, give me a follow. I'll give you a follow back and we can interact on Twitter. Great stuff. Merci, my friend. Thank you very much, Jonathan. Hey, merci beaucoup for the invita invitation. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. Hopefully we'll see you, I think, in Seville for ESRS in 2024. Ooh, I am planning on that. Until then, uh -huh. au revoir. <laughs>